Hello, mamas, and welcome to another episode of the Working Mama podcast. Today, I have with me Hala Marola from Sleep Sweet Consulting, which I know is a topic that is going to be of interest to everyone because no matter what age your child is, sleep is so important. And if I speak from personal experience at the moment, my son was sleeping perfectly and then you go through a regression and then all the balls go back up in the air. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion today. So welcome Hala and I can't wait. Hi, me too. I can't wait. So without further ado, why don't we get into the discussion and Hala, how would you best describe yourself? Uh, I think like most mums, I'm probably a self-confessed foodie. I love food. I probably love carbs the most. And my whole day is just spent thinking about food. Um, I also absolutely love Netflixing without the chill because there has to be snacks. <laughs> That's what I'm all about, really. Um, but yeah, more than anything, I'm I'm just really passionate about helping people. So um, I am a very, very busy mum. I sometimes work 14 to 16 hour days, but it's purely because I work hard to play hard. So everything that I do is to um, get to the other side of, of the play factor, I guess. I like to go on holidays. I like to go exploring with and without my kids um, because, you know, life is just too short to just work nonstop. So, yeah, I guess that's pretty much the best way I can describe myself. Fantastic. And why don't we tell, why don't you tell us then as well a little bit about your career pathway and how you've ended up where you are now? Yeah. um, Well, ever since I was really young, probably from the age of like 12, I was always just the go-to babysitter for my family. But, you know, being in high school and everyone was starting to get jobs and, and buying things that I didn't have, I really, really desperately wanted a job that would actually pay me because, you know, your family doesn't pay you when you babysit. And my dad was hardcore against me working at McDonald's like all my friends were, which is the only place I actually wanted to work because, you know, like I said, food is life. So I had a few family members who started, uh, who were working in community pharmacy and I was lucky enough to be able to get a job with them. And I did that up until, and I, I did that for a very long time actually. But when I left high school, uh, I was doing nursing and I very quickly realised nursing isn't for me. Uh, even though I glorified it in my head my whole life, that's all I ever wanted to be. Um, and after a few years of that, I quit and I became a pharmaceutical tech. Um, I did a very short stint as a pharmaceutical representative, but I always maintained working in community pharmacy. And after doing that for about 10 years, I moved into hospital pharmacy. It's where I still currently work now, except I now work on a part-time basis. Uh, when my son was born, I probably one of the, was one of those mums who had what most would call a unicorn sleeper. Um, he slept really, really well through the night, napped great. I did work very hard on it though. Uh, and everyone told me, well, when you have your second, that's just not going to happen. And then I did have my second and she was sleeping great. And so she was sleeping something like five hours throughout the day. This is newborn phase. Oh, wow. Um, and, sleeping, <laughs> and sleeping through the night. And my son was at kinder. And as much as I love Netflix, there's only so much Netflix that you can do. And I just had lots of people asking me how how I managed to do this with two kids. And I only knew what I did and what I did is not going to be for everybody. And so 
I decided to study to become a sleep consultant. And so that's basically where I'm at now. I still work the three days a week um, at the hospital pharmacy. I work at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. But I work basically every spare second I have, which means seven days a week on this sleep consultancy business because I just, I really love helping parents. I love getting a message a week down the track telling me my baby slept through. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Like there is nothing that can quite measure up to that satisfaction. So yeah, sometimes it does mean I work 14 to 16 hour days as well as wrangling my kids in between. You know, if I've worked both at the Austin, come home, feed the kids, bath them, put them to bed, then work the sleep consultancy. But I've been doing it for a few years now and I still haven't grown tired of it. I'm still so energized to do this. It's, it's awesome. And I guess it's also different when you're working on something that you're so passionate about and you're getting such positive feedback from parents that you're helping because we all know what it's like when we've got a bad sleeper. Uh, that would certainly be so rewarding to yourself to know that you're helping other people achieve something similar to what you've been able to achieve as well with your two children. So much so. That's literally, you know, my whole motto is parenthood and life really is hard enough without the sleep deprivation. So let me at least help with that and then you have to do the rest on your own. Yeah, definitely. So you said obviously being a parent can be quite tough in its own own right. Mm-hmm. How do you think then becoming a parent has changed your perception of working at, but also having a career and being a parent and really managing the juggle and on that what surprised you the most uh it's really funny because my whole life I you know thought that eventually when I got married and had kids that I was going to be a stay-at-home mum and that was purely because I grew up without a mother but you know once I had my first child and I actually had a pretty severe postnatal depression um, and so, yeah, thankfully all okay now. What surprised me massively was once I became a mother and, and obviously probably exacerbated by the fact that I did have postnatal depression was how desperate I was to go back to work, how willing I was to go back to work when I really thought that my whole calling was to be a stay-at-home mum. And, you know, so then I tried to find a balance because I, you know, in this day and age, you do have to work majority of the time. Um, I think that's why more and more people are finding themselves working mothers outside of the home. And especially more so once I became a mother for the second time. Uh, But what surprised me with that child was I actually really didn't want to go back to work anymore. And so I had this like pull of, you know, keeping my career that I was excelling in, but also being at home with my kids and I just really didn't expect to be so torn. I think that's what really surprised me the most about it because I thought I had my mindset and it definitely changed once I had them. Just briefly on your postnatal depression, just to tell people, how did you first identify that you had postnatal depression and what were just some steps to overcome it? I know it's not what our conversation is about today, but just quickly, anything just a quick tip to give to others that might be listening because I also know that sleep and lack of sleep can also cause quite a lot of personal and also mental health issues, particularly with a newborn, um, and it can sometimes all be wrapped up in one. So do you have any advice um, and exper- from your own experiences um, around uh, postnatal depression? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, everybody's experience with it is going to be different. But one question that, um, you know, because you do these questionnaires with, uh, if you do your checkups with your maternal health nurse or with your GP, one question that they do ask you for the mental health checklist is, do you have sleep issues aside from your baby's sleep disruptions? And like I was saying before, my son was sleeping fine. He was napping great during the day. He was sleeping through the night. But for some reason, I wasn't getting more than an hour or two of sleep at night. And I just thought that that was just just standard. I'm now a parent. Um, you know, there's things that I'm worried about. There's anxieties. I started thinking about childcare is going back to work. You know, all your standard motherhood load things that were just only seemed to come up in the middle of the night. And I thought that was the reason behind um, my sleep issues. And I just thought that that's what motherhood was until I started seeing other people who weren't having the same issues. And I guess you can plot along for as long as you can, but when your every day looks like that, that's not normal. It is normal to go through something like that, you know, for a day or two, but if it's going on for more than a few weeks, you really, really should get help. And I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to lie and tell you that I got help immediately. I didn't. I really kept pushing and pushing and I thought this was just normal motherhood and I'll get through it. And it was my husband who actually forced me to go to the GP um, because he saw how much it was not only affecting me, but now my relationship with my son, my relationship with him and other people. Um, and I did, I went to the GP with him, even though it was forcefully, but it was amazing. My GP was so great. He wrote me up a mental health plan. Um, and I went to see a psychologist, uh, and it was great. I was seeing them weekly. I was diagnosed. I was put on medication. And for me, it's almost, I guess, amusing in hindsight, but at the time, even though I've worked with medication, basically my whole career. I found, I found myself feeling ashamed that I needed medication to get better. Um, but now that I'm past that point, I feel like that was so silly to feel because I, I got better because of the medication, you know, and the therapy and everything. But I guess there's all this stigma around mental health back then. That was, you know, six and a half years ago that all this happened. And now six and a half years later, it's now being normalized and there's more people talking about it. And I don't feel the same way. And I really hope that if any mother out there or even father who's listening to this just realizes that there is no shame in getting help. And if you can, you know, even if you think that what you're feeling is normal, still speak to somebody. They can actually tell you if it is, do you need help, how they can assist you to, to get back to how you were feeling prior to feeling as low as you are. That would be my massive advice is to please speak to somebody. It costs nothing to see your GP. It's on Medicare, um, you know, and a mental health plan will mean that you get five subsidized visits, visits by Medicare. And if you need more, then you need more and you can work through that. But at least get those five visits to begin with and, and see how you go from there. What great advice. And I have to say, thank you so much for talking so openly and honestly about it because... As you said, yeah, there are stigmas around mental health, postnatal depression. Uh, they are getting better, but I guess there is still stigma around it. Uh, so thank you so much for speaking so honestly and openly about it. Good to hear that you've come out of the end of it. I'm sure it was challenging at the time, but it's it's so positive that it's and it's so good to hear that we've got these resources around. So you've talked about the the challenges 
that you've had was that in overcoming postnatal depression for parenting was that has that been your biggest challenge so far that you've faced definitely that i mean the postnatal depression is it was really bad because i mean the the biggest challenge from that was the lack of ability to bond with my child you know and everybody talks about um, you know, when the baby's born, you feel this overwhelming love and all of that, and that didn't happen for me. And and I understand that it doesn't happen for a lot of people, but then they eventually do feel that love. And I honestly didn't feel it for a couple of years, which is when I started to feel better. And I I feel horrible for it, but it's nothing that was in my control. Um, and, you know, my son and I have an amazing relationship now. I've worked on it tremendously to try to make up for that time, but there is always that guilt. And I felt like that was um, my biggest challenge ever. That's so good to hear that things have have certainly improved, uh, as I said. And then moving on from that, if obviously you've had such a a different experience then with your second child, uh, with your daughter, because you didn't want to go back uh, necessarily to work. You wanted to be be this stay-at-home mother because you thought, it's interesting how your two experiences of parenting were so different as well and and what I guess your perceptions from what you said at the start yeah um it it, I had a very very different experience with her and the moment she was born I did feel that love and I cried because obviously I, I missed that so I I cried because I did feel the love but I also cried like almost mourning the fact that I didn't feel that with my first and it just made me want to give him all the love and affection, even though she was a brand new newborn that, you know, needed that. But I wanted to give it to him because he didn't get it either. Yeah, it was completely, completely different. Yeah. And the experiences that you've had, what advice would you give to your younger self about starting a family? It's funny when you, before you have kids, you're very naive and and you have this idea in your head of, what kind of parent you're going to be based on the parents that you see around you. And, you know, you see all these funny memes going around being like, oh, when your childless friends say that they're never going to do this with their kids. And, you know, it's always a picture of somebody laughing, but it is literally like that, that, you know, these things are going viral for a reason. You are so naive pre kids and, and you think that you've researched all of this and, and you know, everything and nothing will ever prepare you for the type of child that you will have because every single child is unique. So my biggest advice is just, just breathe, just try your best to stress less because it will all be okay. And even when it's not, you'll get over it and it will be okay again. And then it won't, and then it will, and then it won't, and then it will. And that's just parenthood. And it's the same thing like with sleep, you know, even once I help my parents with sleep, I will tell them, I know it's all great now, but your baby will regress. That's just what they do. You know, it will be okay until it's not. And you just work through it. Oh, those sleep regressions. I <laughs> oh, they're a challenge. I never yeah, it's one thing as well, pre kid, no one told me about the sleep regressions. I didn't know either. <laughs> so talking on the sleep topic, there's I know a whole lot of opinions out there about sleep training, sleep consulting, good, bad, indifferent. If you want to just give an overview, what exactly is it that you do? I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, obviously, uh, but this industry of sleep consulting isn't a regulated one. So 
one thing I definitely want to mention with anybody who's looking to get a sleep consultant is to make sure that you have the opportunity to chat to them prior to booking them so that you make sure that your values align with theirs. Because the last thing you want is to book somebody, pay all this money, and then they say, yep, just leave your baby to cry it out. You know, that's just, it's definitely something that I don't recommend. If you want to do that, then go for it. But you probably wouldn't need to hire a sleep consultant if that was something that you wanted to do. For me, um, I look at sleep holistically. I look at every aspect that can affect sleep. And yes, routine plays a massive, massive part in it. And that's one thing that we definitely focus heavily on. Um, But so does you know, uh, the temperature and bedding in your child's room, um, what you dress them in, how you're spacing out feeds throughout the day, what types of food that you're giving them, um, everything can affect sleep. So I look at sleep personally, the way I consult is looking at sleep holistically. I've got a very um, extensive questionnaire that I go through. And the last thing that we talk about is a self-settling method. Because if you've got everything else right, the self-settling method is literally just the last piece of the puzzle to create this perfect sleeping baby. So there's a lot more to sleep than just sleep. Yeah, I mean, one massive, massive thing that comes up over and over again is a parent will tell me that their baby went from sleeping through the night to now waking up, you know, between 4 and 5 a.m. and will not go back to sleep without a feed. And this baby probably wouldn't have been feeding through the night for a few months. And it always coincidentally happens at a time like right now in Melbourne, it's even though we're in summer, it's it's gotten cold. And so, you know, the parents will still be dressing their baby in the summer uh, clothes because it is supposed to be summer. But, you know, when overnight it's dropping to nine degrees and, you know, between four and six a.m. is the coldest part of the night, they're waking because they're cold. And guess what? Milk is nice and warm. So if it were me, I, I also wouldn't go to sleep without a nice warm cup of milk or glass of milk or booby milk or whatever it may be. Um, you know, because they are cold, so they're feeding for warmth, not for hunger. Usually it's something as simple as turning on a heater or increasing the bedding that gets that sleep through back again. Yeah, I never thought about it that way. That's hey, I'm gonna I'm yeah. I'm loving this. Uh this is gonna be awesome. <laughs> I'd love to just pick your brain for my child, but I know that I've got to think about everyone out there as well. And one thing that I know with sleep that on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I was looking at this as part of my research into tonight's discussion, was that sleep falls under the first level. So if those are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy, there's I think five different levels uh, around what Mm -hmm. you need in life. You know, so level number one is the basics such as food and shelter and sleep. And then it then goes up to the hierarchy. I can include a link in the show notes. And definitely as well, every parent wishes that they could get more sleep for not only themselves, but also their children. And I know that it's a newborn thing as well. Like my sister's just recently had a child and it's one thing I'll say to her, how are you going? And then the first response I'll get back is I've had two hours, like he's feeding every two hours or feeding every three hours. So is it, it seems to be the common topic with, with I think all parents. Um, mm-hmm. And I, as you said, your area of work is very personalized, but like you said, around the, the waking at 4am, are there other common themes that you see in relation to, to sleep? Or there's, I guess, a multitude of, of reasons why kids, A, may not be self-settling and then also B, waking up through the night or waking up early for a morning? Or is it just it's such a broad topic of really throwing all the balls up in the air and, and everyone has their own personalised reason about why they may not be settling or sleeping? 
Yeah, I mean, it definitely is very broad. Uh, there's, like I said before, there is a lot of aspects that can affect sleep. Um, I think every parent on some aspect has had some difficulty with sleep. Um, but it also depends on the parent's own threshold of what they expect to be normal with sleep. And sleep deprivation is part of parenthood, but for how long? You know, I've spoken to some people that would be like, oh, but my baby's never slept through and they're two years old. And while that is normal for them and they're okay to deal with that, I might speak to another parent who has, you know, a five-month-old and they're like, I can't do this anymore. Help me, fix me. So it really is also dependent on what the parent's threshold is and what their expectations around sleep are. Because there, there isn't really a badge of honour of who went through the most sleep deprivation. Like, I promise you that. Um, no, but, and there shouldn't be either. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do find that, you know, because you will speak to, like, and, and every single parent is different. And my job isn't to be like, oh, but your baby should be sleeping through the night at two, because that's not my job. My job purely exists for those who want the help and I'll help them. I would never, ever um, interject and tell somebody that they their baby should be sleeping through. If they're happy with their situation, then that's that's on them. Yeah, I, my services are very personalised and I do look at sleep holistically, but I find that incorrect routine for the age, using a self-settling method that probably isn't appropriate for the age. Like, for example, an 18-month-old probably still like to get them to fall asleep unassisted, we probably should move away from rocking because that's a bit too stimulating. Whereas rocking for a three-month-old, spot on, go for it. You know, so there's things like that is about changing it. Uh, And I think that's probably what I work on the most is just getting the age appropriate routines, um, settling methods in place um, that changes a lot of things. And, And on that routine, how do you know or how can parents know what is best then for their child? Because you could keep doing the same routine, but obviously not understanding the development of the cues of the child. So how do you know at three months that they need even X sleeps in the day compared to say an 18 month old? How can you educate and find out what's then required for your child? Because then even, I know myself, it's, I don't know what's sometimes needed. And I might find off a friend or something like that, but there's so much of this is unknown, but obviously it's so important as well. You can, in this day and age, we're very lucky. We can Google almost anything. But the problem is with having so much information out there, a lot of it can be conflicting. Uh, my services gives you two weeks of unlimited support with me. So usually the routine that we start off with is not the routine that we'll have a week later and definitely not the routine that we'll end up with. You'll still get the result that you're after, but it does take a lot. I'm not going to be able to speak to somebody and be saying, boom, bang, this is your routine, good luck. Um, It does take a lot of working out. The awake timing is based on scientific studies, you know, a lot and a lot of data about what babies can handle with awake timing. But even in that, it's quite broad. Like, for example, um, a 12-month-old can handle anywhere from three to four hours of awake time. That is 60 minutes of variance. And so even though, yes, you can find that on the internet, how do you know where to start with your baby? Um, And the way to think of it is, you know, We all have penile glands in our brain. Um, It's somewhere in the centre between the left and right hemisphere. And for babies, their penile gland is much, much larger than us adults. And that's purely because their sleep needs are much greater than ours. As they get older, their penile gland shrinks a little bit, which means they can have a lot more awake time. So 
you know, for a newborn, they can probably only go through about 30 minutes to 45 minutes of awake time. And like I was saying, a 12 month old can go to three to four hours of awake time before needing to have a nap. That's a massive, massive difference. And so you can start on the smallest amount of awake time and slowly work your way up. Or you can talk to someone like me who can sift through all the information based on the information that you give me and we can work through it together. And is there different stages that children go through that you can then identify from a sleep perspective on how to manage their routines and food and stimulation, I guess, as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, everybody would have heard the whole eat, play, sleep routine. Um, it's universal. It's all over the world. Whether you speak to a consultant from Australia to somebody in America, will all say the similar thing. Um, and that's purely because, you know, the whole feed to sleep association is the one that sleep consultants have to work the hardest to, to help parents move away from so that their baby is falling asleep without food. So if we start the routine with an eating first when they wake up, having a bit of a play, then they're ready to sleep. Um, so I guess that's the most universal one that most people work with so on that one um i know a lot of parents will use it say to top up of an evening like do the last feed and then to then Mm -hmm. put their child to sleep is that something that goes against that eat play sleep routine no not at all because that last top up feed um i mean even i would work with it so say you're doing your standard dinner at five and your bedtime is at seven, then I would uh, I would recommend that you would give that top up feed at six thirty because you know you're generally done with the feed within about ten minutes, um, and then that leaves you with twenty minutes of awake time that disassociates that feed to sleep, and it and it's done. It's so it's served its purpose to sort of fill in the gaps from dinner so that you're ready for that beautiful long sleep overnight, but you're not feeding literally to sleep. It's just it, it's given a bit of time. Um, to break away from that. Yeah, just that disassociation. So for working parents, going back to work can be also quite stressful when they've got children that aren't sleeping great. But also there is the concern about going into childcare. And we all know that childcare is highly stimulating. Lots of kids, Mm -hmm. they have different environments. Some sleep on mats, some sleep on cots. Um, and you may have, say, white noise used at home, but they don't have that at childcare. Routines at childcare are a little bit different to what they are at home in very different environments. How can we manage that transition with sleep uh, as part of also going back to work when it's already quite a highly stressful uh, period of people's lives? And I know the childcare transition is already stressful and sleep, how can we help? manage that transition more than anything it's just about being mentally prepared there's really not much that you can do it's out of your control you you are handing your child over to somebody else to look after them so you just really need to be mentally prepared that it's not going to be perfect especially for the first couple of weeks so my biggest advice is just don't stress about it kids adapt so well to two different routines you can have your baby on two naps a day sleeping perfectly at home and at childcare they only have one large nap a day and your child very quickly learns the difference between being at home and you do this this way and being at childcare and they do things that way. You know, you'll hear a lot, even just 
about parents saying, oh, my child doesn't eat very well at home, but at childcare eats everything. It's because they're around other kids who are doing the similar thing. And it's the same thing. If your child, you know, naps in a cot, which until recently my daughter was doing the same, but at childcare, she sleeps on a mat on the floor without a sleeping bag, um, just with a thin sheet on her. Whereas at home, I've got the heater on, I've just got the white noise, she's got her sleeping bag. It's completely different. But once they're doing it for a couple of weeks, they get used to it very quickly. So, you know, my only advice is let childcare do their thing. Let them know your routine roughly. They'll do their best to follow it. They all try their best. But at the end of the day, your child will learn the difference. And worst case scenario, if it doesn't go well, put your baby to bed a little bit earlier and get back on track the next day. It'll be okay. So they can pick up on the two different uh, environments, really? 100%. Wow. Okay. That's good because I know that's – and that's – thanks for debunking that myth because it's interesting that it's definitely – I know a big stress, as I said, um, for a lot of parents um, about making that transition with childcare. As we said, sleep's so important. Um, just as you think yep. you got it right, and it's probably at that same point, you're like, no, I've got my sleep down pat, and then I'm going back to work and things will then go all up and and what's it going to be like? Yeah. But it's good to know that, as you've said, you've debunked that myth that, that kids can adapt in that way. Definitely. And majority of my consultations are parents who are just about to go to work or they thought it would all be okay once they went to work and realized it's not and so that's when they get me and so it's usually majority of my clients around probably the eight to ten month old mark because they're either going to work or have just gone to work and they just still can't deal Um, you know obviously I've worked with babies very young and obviously uh, toddlers that are much older but that's generally the age range and that's the biggest thing that we work on um, even if they worked with me prior to going to childcare, I'll always tell them look give me a call once you are at childcare, just to let me know how things are going and they'll all tell me you know what it was exactly like you said it took a couple of weeks and we're all okay that's so good to hear so are there is there any other generic advice that you can also give around like from, from those parents of that eight to ten month age group about making that transition or as you said earlier it's very much around that mental preparation and the children will learn to adapt as much as it's probably it's harder for the parent than what it is for the child yeah I mean the biggest thing would be every moment that you have that spare make sure you're spending it with that child because a lot of um, the issues would come around with the separation anxiety. This is going to be the first time that your baby's not going to see you all day. And so when you come home, it's very easy to quickly stress about getting that whole like dinner, um, bath and bed. And then you'll notice that when you go to put your baby to bed, they're, they're not having a bar of it. They're clinging on to you. They're crying out for you. And that's purely because they really, really miss you. So if you can spend at least 10 minutes on the floor with them, giving them nothing but your time, um, lots of eye-to-eye contact, lots of cuddles, lots of play the way they want to play rather than you, uh, I guess, guiding the play, letting them do it, um, you'll find it'll make a massive difference to your bedtime just to get you guys back on track, especially in the early days. They're going through, I guess, as well, a lot developmentally around that phase um, as well. So, And does separation anxiety then come into sleep um, as an issue? Definitely. Separation anxiety peaks between six, uh, sorry, seven to nine months. Um, it peaks again between 14 to 16 months old. It peaks again at two years old. And basically, look, it's going to keep happening when other situations arise, like, you know, if they, somebody else looked after them or if you went back to work, um, if they were sick, they obviously want comfort from their primary caregiver, which is generally the mother. 
it's just going to keep peaking, but they're the, they're the most common ones. Um, and the best way to help with that is if you are on a routine, it means that the baby knows when sleep is coming. They also know when food is coming and all the other things that are in that routine. But the biggest um, thing about being on a routine is they know what to expect in their, in their day. So even if they are going through separation anxiety, you'll probably have the worst time during their awake period. But because sleep is never changing, you shouldn't have a problem with that. Hala, we hear a lot about sleep regressions. What are they and why do they happen? Sleep regressions is a terrible way to describe a mental or physical progression um, that your baby is going through, which is basically their whole life. So every time a child progresses mentally or physically, sleep is likely to regress. That could be because um, they have just learned how to sit up or they've learned how to crawl or they've learned how to pull themselves up on furniture or they've learned how to walk these are all the physical um, progressions that most babies will go through or even rolling to begin with actually and you know when they're going to practice that is in the cot because in the cot is probably the first time that they were left alone so that they can practice the things that they learned throughout the day and so it's very very normal that sleep is going to regress and what parents think that sleep regressing means is that they're going to be crying all night long, but sometimes it can be as simple as them taking a little bit longer than the parents are used to to fall asleep. And that's purely because they're practicing these skills and that's completely normal, you know, and then the mental ones is like when they learn to talk or when um, they learn that their behavior can manifest change, which is where you'll start to get, you know, the toddler tactics of stalling bedtime, which is fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things to work with. Um, but yeah, they're all progressions. And, you know, when sleep does regress, you will notice a couple of weeks later that this new skill is going to emerge. And it's, it's actually amazing. But yes, I understand in the interim, um, it's exhausting because parents don't know exactly what's going on. And more than anything, a lot of what I do is just getting parents to be mentally prepared for it, that it's okay. And as long as you are consistent with your routine and what you are teaching your baby to expect, it won't last very long. So they are very, very normal and they're good things. And how, do they, how long do they commonly last for? Usually a couple of weeks. So for parents, you just got to almost suck it up and just ride the wave knowing that it will get better. Yeah. The biggest thing is try your best not to introduce a new uh, variable to sleep. So if your baby's always self-settled and has been sleeping through the night and, you know, now you've gone through a regression where, I don't know, let's say your baby's about nine months old and they've learned to pull themselves up in the cot and, you know, being parents, we like to watch them fall asleep. We've got the monitor on. And so you notice your baby stand up in the cot and the first thing I would say majority of parents do is run in and go lay the baby back down. For the baby, this is fun. Hey, I stood up and mum came and laid me down. So it becomes this bit of a game. But if they're not crying and they're happy to stand in their cot you've, and you've done the right thing of dropping the base level down, they're safe. Let them explore. This is their cot time. Just, it's okay. Just leave them to it and they'll get to sleep. And you've just talked then about self-settling and I know that comes with its own connotations what is your interpretation of self-settling and how can parents work towards that because I think that's part of the dream that everyone has that they know how to self-settle 
you'll hear the words self-settling and self-soothing being thrown around. Self-soothing is a developmental process. Your baby can't be forced, I guess, or coerced into doing that. That'll happen when they're good and ready. But self-settling is the process of falling to sleep unassisted. Um, and that can definitely happen very, very early on. Um, my own daughter was doing it from as young as three weeks old. And that's not because I used a method to get her there. It was because I had everything else right. I had the right routine for her age. I made sure she was fed um, and ready to go to sleep. I put her in the cot drowsy but awake. And that purely means that I assisted her a little bit to get there. you know. And then when I placed her down, it was just the last few minutes that she did on her own. And the more you practice that, soon it becomes you just put your baby down and you walk out. And they will just do it all themselves from being wide awake. That is the self-settling, I guess, unicorn that everyone's trying to get to. And that's what I do help with. And they're there from another developmental phase. So from a very young age, there's a lot to be taught. Is there also then in terms of transitions between, say, cots to then their own beds? Is that another also key phase that parents go through? Absolutely. And sometimes parents go through it a little bit too soon, which is what regresses sleep even further. So for example, you might have a one-year-old who has learned how to climb. And again, part of the cot time is they're practicing that in their cot, which is obviously quite dangerous. And so parents will make the transition to the bed or a toddler bed quite early and take them out of the cot. But the thing is, babies, boys even more so than girls, need the security of the cot to be able to you know or I guess I just said it then just feel secure I I don't know if you guys have ever read or heard of um, Raising Boys and Raising Girls by Steve Bidoff I think I said his name right he is I think a psychologist and he wrote about that quite extensively that you know making the transition to the uh, to a bed too early can have some sort of consequences because they're given freedom and babies and toddlers can't actually develop impulse control till closer to three years old which is why they need to be secured in a cot because they're not going to understand that they shouldn't be getting in and out of bed and that's where the regression can sort of occur so generally they do recommend that you transition to a bed over the age of two and a half years old as close to three as possible I always joked that I'd keep my daughter in in her cot until she's 21 (laughs) Um, but she's (laughs) she's about almost two and 11 months old and I just made the transition few days ago on Sunday so I did my best she's almost three so yeah it was time to move her and the transition's all gone well yeah easy <laughs> but I, I can I can say that because I know exactly what I'm doing I guess um you know there was a lot of preparing she got to choose her bed sheets and we spoke about it a lot um she got to see her cot being dismantled and being given to another family and she was very happy about that and yeah now she really wanted an Elsa bed Oh, how cute. Rage here. <laughs> that that didn't happen. She didn't get an Elsa bed, but she's happy nonetheless. So yeah, it's it's all going good. She's sleeping in it. Um in probably a couple of weeks is where the novelty will wear off. So it's only been, you know, a few days. So at the moment it's still okay. Um but yeah, in a couple of weeks I do expect that the novelty will wear off and she might try to test her boundaries by getting out of bed. That's what the video monitor is for. And so I'll just keep an eye on that and and you know, make sure that I intercept that before it becomes something that's dangerous because she does have an oil heater in her room. But this is all part of being mentally prepared. And I already know that this is going to happen because number one, I I consult it, but I've also had another child. So it is something that I'm making sure that I get on top of before it regresses everything completely that I've worked so hard for. (laughs) 
That's something I'm definitely picking up during our conversation was the mental preparation about sleep and, and the different stages. That for me is a light bulb moment. Are you able to explain and expand on a little bit more about that mental preparation as a parent for children? Definitely. Um, so we mentioned earlier just about, you know, the expectancy of once you become a parent that sleep is going to be an issue. We know this. We know that newborn babies feed every one to two hours overnight. We know our sleep is going to be crap. Let's not sugarcoat it. But your baby shouldn't be doing that when they are six months old. They don't need to be feeding one to two hours overnight. That's likely a settling issue because they don't know how to fall back asleep. And so if you know a little bit about what is the realms of normal, obviously every single baby is different, but if you know roughly about the realms of normality, um, then you can be better mentally prepared about that. So for a newborn um, and basically under the age of um, three months old, you can read up about the fourth trimester. There's lots of information about that on the web um, that you can Google to know that basically it is the transition of life from what a lot of us like to call it womb life to room life. And so your baby's only ever known you and we need to be gentle in the fact that they're still getting used to being in the outside world. Um, so, you know, your traditional self-settling method of leaving your baby to cry or whatever it may be is not going to be applied during this age range, you know. And then the next couple of months is obviously introducing solids and, you know, your baby's likely to be unsettled when you introduce a new um, food group and you will likely see that happen overnight because, you know, they're having dinner at five o'clock, they're going to bed at seven if you're on the standard routine, I guess. Um, that you might find things like that happen. And then um, when they move up to about you know, seven, eight months old is probably around the age that you could and probably um, should expect your baby to have the ability to sleep through the night because at that point they're having three solid meals and four milk feeds during the day. And so you can probably work towards trying to get them to fall asleep unassisted so that when they do wake up through their sleep cycles overnight that they're likely to put themselves back to sleep so there's lots of things that keep happening with sleep and if you somewhat know roughly what's going on oh one actually massive one that i didn't mention um, is the four-month sleep regression everybody knows the four-month sleep regression everybody's heard of it but really it is not a regression it's a mental progression your baby goes from you know prior to this four-month sleep regression only waking up when they need a feed or are otherwise uncomfortable, you know, if they're too hot, too cold, they're in pain, they've got gas, whatever it may be, they will wake for you. But generally you, you will start to have longer stretches of sleep at around three months old. And then four months comes along and your baby's waking every two hours. And what's happening is, is your baby is having sleep cycles, much like how us adults are having sleep cycles. So for us adults, our sleep cycles is four hourly. So we'll wake up, you know, we'll go to bed. Uh, we should, generally sleep anywhere between seven to nine hours that's what's recommended so you know somewhere in the middle of the night we'll have a very brief wake and we will roll over or get into a different position or put the blanket back over us or take the blanket off us whatever it may be it's quite brief and a lot of us don't even remember that uh, and then we go back to sleep for babies this happens too hourly overnight which is why we know about it because if they don't know how to fall asleep without our assistance they generally will cry out to get back to sleep the way they fell asleep. And of course, if there's external factors like them being cold, them being hungry um, or otherwise uncomfortable, that's also going to exacerbate the wake. And so, 
you know, if we are mentally prepared that yes, sleep for a short period of time is going to regress because it will take your baby a few weeks to get used to the fact that they're now waking too hourly when previously they were sleeping much longer stretches. They're also just as confused as we are. And we need to give them that opportunity to get through the, get through that and assist them through that. And that's all about being mentally prepared. That's such a great explanation. And trust me, I, before I had my son, I wish I'd even thought about it from that perspective, but <laughs> it actually is a really good way to look at it. It's not only about thinking about sleep of, from your, for your child, but there is that mental preparation, I think, associated with so many aspects of parenting. Uh, and that's just for me, yeah, been a real light bulb moment. Thank you so much. <laughs> that's I mean, awesome. Yeah, that's no awesome. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, just quickly as well, what's your view on swaddling and sleep suits? Love them. Must be used, I would say. You, you will find your odd child who, well, I'm not saying odd in a bad way, as in rarity, you will find a child here and there who doesn't like to be swaddled. But in general, majority of them do like to be swaddled. There is, I don't know if you've ever heard of the five S's that was developed by Dr. Harvey Karp, and one of them is swaddling, and it's part of that fourth trimester transition from womb life to womb life. And so, you know, when they were still inside us, they were quite snug and squished, and there wasn't much room for movement, which is why swaddling is great, so that they can slowly make that transition from being so cramped up. Um, to being now having all the freedom in the world. And that generally happens, you know, for about three to four months in, at the start of their life. And then when they transition from that and now they don't have their startle reflex anymore um, and that's not going to affect their sleep, then we can move on to a sleeping bag. And the reason why sleeping bags are really important is not only is it a positive sleep association associated with every single sleep, it also is a wearable blanket. And, you know, babies' number one blankets aren't safe um, for SIDS uh, reasons, obviously, but it's to make sure that they are warm enough because they're not going to be able to stay underneath the blanket when they're rolling around all over the cot. So uh, a wearable blanket in the form of a sleeping bag is perfect to use and they will continue to use it until they are in a bed. And, and as I mentioned earlier, my daughter has transitioned to a bed a few days ago, but she's still in a sleeping bag because she still hasn't quite gotten the grasp and in, in the terms of, of being underneath a blanket all night long. So I will put it on her at the start of the night, but you know, within an hour when I turn on the monitor to, to check on her to see how she's going, the blanket's off and that she's got her sleeping bag. So I know she's okay. How did they sleep last night is a common question from all parents to new parents. Sleep deprivation, as we know, as parents is a form of torture and everyone can relate to this. But as new mums, we often feel that we should be just by nature, be able to settle our children. And we may feel like we're failing because bub might be unsettled because as you've explained already, because of a multitude of reasons. What's your view about seeking help at any stage of children's life and particularly in relation to sleep? I obviously advocate for seeking help, not just because I'm in this industry, but because it is a basic need to get sleep. We're all happier people and we function better when we have sleep. We have more patience with our children when we have more sleep. You know, just think about the last time that you were sleep deprived and your child did something which is definitely underneath the realm of being a normal child and you snap at them and if you really look internally of, of where that 
anger came from, I'm sure it had a lot to do with the fact that you are sleep deprived. Um, so that's why I definitely advocate for seeking help. You know, and even with adults, many psychologists deal with sleep issues in adults often, and it's definitely much easier to deal with sleep as a child than it is when they are older. Even babies are much easier to work with than a toddler who is mentally headstrong and can give you a tactic for every single solution that you have. It's much, much easier to, to fix it when they are younger. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add about sleep consulting with children? Please make sure you research your consultant, whoever you work with. I offer 10-minute consultations um, for free so that parents purely have, and it's, it's for that reason to purely speak to me to make sure I'm the right fit for their family. And every single person that has ever had a free 10-minute consultation, and I promise you there's hundreds, all of them will tell you that I told them to make sure they spoke to another consultant as well to see because, you know, I might not be the right fit for your family and that's absolutely okay. I do this as a passion job. This is not my main source of income. I do this because I purely want to help and I am not upset if that help that you get is by somebody else. As long as you're getting it, as long as you're getting the help that you need to make your days better, then that's, that makes me happy in itself. So just make sure that you research the person that you work with because, you know, as much as it breaks my heart to say this, a lot of my clients come from somebody else who did not um, share the same values as they did and, you know, they paid a whole lot of money to be given a self-settling method like cry it out or control crying that is something they definitely did not want to do and they were upset with that experience and, it, it breaks my heart. So just make sure whoever you work with, you research them, that you're happy with them because if you are, you're going to succeed. And I think that's purely the reason why I have a 100% success rate. So just make sure research is your number one thing on your list. That's a great statistic in terms of success rate. So you can't get so much far. better than that. Yeah. <laughs> so far. And before we go, any final tips and advice to parents in relation to sleep? We have all heard, you know, ever since our babies were really young, everyone's heard this at some point that we should always dress our babies in one layer more than what we're wearing. True? Yes. Heard that many, many times. (laughs) The exact same goes for sleep. You have to think about it in the terms of our blankets that we go to bed in is about 12 to 15 togs. Our baby's sleeping bags, the maximum it goes up to 3.5 togs. Obviously, it's in relation to body mass and volume. It's, it's completely different. But, you know, don't be putting your baby in a short sleeve top and a one-tog sleeping bag if the night starts off at, say, I don't know, 25 degrees, if between 4 and 6 a.m. it's going to drop to 9 degrees. You need to have something in the middle because your baby's going to wake and be cold. So my biggest thing is just really think about what you're dressing your baby in. I can't tell you how many people that I speak to who underdress their babies. And I I get it because we're afraid to overdress them. But I think if you keep in mind that as long as you're dressing your baby in one layer more than you're currently wearing, you'll be okay. 
That's such great advice uh, and a great note to finish on because I could talk to you about sleep all day and pick <laughs> your brain from all different experiences. And I've only got a 21-month-old and my sister's got a four-week-old oh, and I've got everything else in between. But I've got two final questions for you. First of all, okay. you're a busy mum that's working sometimes 14 to 16 hours a day, which is amazing. I don't know how you're doing it. What strategies and initiatives do you use to help you manage the juggle of being a working mama that's holding down two jobs with two beautiful children and a husband as well? Honestly, more than anything, it is because I have that amazing husband. I know that a lot of people will say that I am lucky to have that, um, but more than anything, it's communication. Communication is key. I, you know, our calendars are synced up. He knows what my days are entailing and so if that means that he is you know putting in 90% that day and the only thing I did was 10% of feeding the kids and bathing them before he got home um, so that he can take over while I get ready for the for the night work that makes a massive massive difference so I think just more than anything is to make sure that whoever is your support network knows what's going on with you so they can help you Um, where they need to but also don't expect people to read your minds to help you ask that is something I still struggle with hand on heart Um, but do ask for the help make sure that you at least having a day or fortnight to go have a coffee with a friend outside of the home because you know the work struggle and the parenting struggle the relationship struggle of just keeping everything afloat is is a lot and if you can just get out, you know, once every now and then, even if it's just for an hour, it will do a world of good for your sanity. And is that what you do to fill your cup, to have a coffee yeah. with friends? <laughs> <laughs> I need it. I need it. If I'm not out at least once a fortnight, everybody in my family will know about it. <laughs> They're like, Mom, get out. <laughs> yeah. It's either that or I take my laptop and I close the bedroom door, even if the kids are on the other side, but with my husband. I'd be like, I need an hour. Just let me watch a show and I'll, I'll be okay. And so I'll just, I'll watch some Netflix. I'll have a snack. And then once the episode's done, I come back out and I'm like, all right, I can face the day again. I just, cause you do, you feel touched out. And especially with the work that I do both outside of the home, which is at the Austin hospital and inside of the home, which is the sleep consulting. And plus I've got my kids, plus I've got my husband, all of it is I'm helping, I'm helping, I'm helping. And while that does fill my cup in some aspects, you do feel touched out. And so if you just, you know, create some time for yourself, um, it will it will sort of uh, help things a little bit. Otherwise, you'll burn out. And I'm not going to lie, sometimes I get very, very close to burnout, um, but I'm lucky that I have a husband who recognises that and pulls me back very quickly before I get there. So, yeah. Kudos to you. You've, you've got it all figured out and doing a great job by the sounds of it. So congratulations. Thank you. So just finally, how can people connect with you and find out more about your services and stay in touch with you? Because also I know that every Sunday night on your Instagram, your Instagram stories, you're answering people's questions as well because you give so much to so many people. So how can people connect with you uh, and find out more about Sleep Suite Consulting? Um, so Sleep Sweet Consulting is on Facebook, on Instagram, and I do have a website. I do the majority 
of everything on Instagram. And like you mentioned, I do have an Ask Me Anything session every single Sunday night on my Instagram stories. I put the segment up on my stories the night before. So you guys have about 24 hours to ask questions. Um, and I sit there for about an hour or so answering as many of them as I can. And it is, it is all for free. I answer everything except for routines and self-settling methods because those two things aren't broad subjects. They're very, very personalized. So I can't really answer that, um, but I will answer everything else. Uh, I do have free 10 minute consultations, but more than anything, just message me on Instagram or Facebook, or there's even a contact me page on my um, website. I'm very responsive. I understand that babies don't understand business hours. I know because I have two of them, even though they sleep perfectly, there was once upon a time where they didn't. And I get that sometimes you want to message somebody at 10 p.m. at night and if I'm awake I'm going to reply straight away because I understand how important that is um, to get a response from somebody because I am a real person on the other side and I'm here to help. Oh that's amazing and is your handle at Sleep Sweet Consulting on Instagram? It is. Fantastic. Just wanted to clarify that for everyone that's listening. So, Hala, I have to say thank you so, so much for your time uh, and everything associated with this podcast. I know that personally I have learned so much uh, and I could pick your brain all night, but I know that we've we've actually both got to sleep at some point and I have to say it's been a pleasure talking with you. You give so much to so many people and to help parents get that miraculous aspect of sleep. Um, It's not something you realise how important it is until you've got children and keep up the great work, keep up that 100% success rate because you're definitely making a massive impact to so many people's lives um, through your personalised approach. So thank you so much. It's been a fantastic chat and I can't wait to, to keep watching you and seeing your business grow. So congratulations and uh, I look forward to seeing you in the future. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you for listening to the Working Mama podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast catch-up. I invite you also to join the Working Mama community on Facebook and join in the conversation with other like-minded working mums. Please also feel free to contact me on any of the Working Mama social channels. Remember, Mama is M-U-M-M-A or website www.workingmama.com.au. I would appreciate you to share this podcast with friends and colleagues, especially those that are parents managing the juggle. And I would really appreciate if you had to take the time out to leave a review of the podcast. Thank you and see you next time. Have a great week.